0: I'm Josh Klein.
1: And I'm Elise Hugh.
0: We host a podcast from Accenture called Built for Change.
1: Every part of every business is being reinvented right now. That means companies are facing brand new pressures to use fast evolving technologies and address shifting consumer expectations.
0: But with big changes come even bigger opportunities. We've talked with leaders from every corner of the business world to learn how they're harnessing change to totally reinvent their companies.
1: And how you can do it, too.
0: Subscribe to Built for Change now so you don't miss an episode.
1: This is a Crowd Podcast.
2: We were ordered to proceed at best speed to rendezvous with a combat SAR helicopter to pick up two uh, British special forces that had been injured.
3: This is Larry Eddingfield. In 1990, he was captain of the USS Antietam, an American warship stationed in the Gulf.
2: They needed medical care from dehydration and basically they'd been on the run for about 24 hours until they were picked up by the combat rescue helicopter. Uh, one of them was very delirious, could hardly walk.
3: Who is Larry talking about here? Who are the injured men? And what were they doing in Kuwait? How did they get there? This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. In this episode, you'll hear about a military operation that's been denied for 30 years, and it's still denied to this day. But first, let me bring you up to speed on the plight of the human shields. Some of the women and children had made it home, but of course the men, and some women who had chosen to stay with their partners, were still captives. Barry
2: Manners was spending
3: twenty-four hours a day locked in a porter cabin above a turbine.
2: You'd wake up every morning, and um, you'd have that horrible realisation that you're, you're there. It just becomes as real and as normal as getting on the number nine bus and going to work would be. It's not a dramatic revelation. There's no blinding light. Oh shit! We're going to be killed. We're all going to be killed. It was like osmosis. You just gradually just accept that my life might very well end here and it becomes irresponsible to yourself mentally to expect that it won't because the moment that you start to think that we're all going to get out of here something will happen to dent that conviction. We had an inkling of how the international situation was deteriorating and how it was more likely that we would be executed or bombed but then something would happen there'd be a un resolution or there was this whole sort of beauty parade of wannabe statesmen who came out and you 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 had that moment when you thought maybe maybe and when it didn't happen the fall from that the the come down was incredibly painful and it was actually easier just to accept the sort of the 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 numbness of the, you you didn't hope for anything more than where you were. The only thing that I concentrated on was, you live in the moment, If, if you see food, you eat it. And if you see something that might be useful, if you have to run and hide, you grabbed it.
3: Clive Earthy could see the Iraqis were making preparations for war. Out of our windows, Just
4: outside the bungalow, the Iraqis were digging massive great holes all the way around us and up the road and putting in guns, big guns, um, probably uh, anti-aircraft guns. So you could actually see nasty things happening as well as bad news that um, the West are expected to invade Kuwait sometime soon which was also bloody scary. I took it on myself to uh, cut a red carpet into strips and put it on the roof of our white flat roofed bungalow and I then found in our back porch area an old telephone. I plugged it into a socket and my god it worked. I then rang the British Embassy in Kuwait because I had their numbers with me and I reported exactly where we were in Kuwait. And you can't get wrong because there's a big red cross on the roof.
3: Clive says the embassy later denied any knowledge of these phone calls. His attempts to pinpoint the location didn't result in a rescue and his group were left to face their fate alone. It started to look like their time was up.
4: One afternoon, the English-speaking Iraqi soldier was on guard again outside and uh, there were two other blokes out with him digging this massive great hole in, right in the front garden, <laughs> to which I, I then said, went up to our little um, English-speaking soldier and said, what do you think they are doing that? And he said, oh, Mr. Clive, they are digging somewhere to burn the rubbish. And I said, no, can't be that. Everybody's burning their rubbish over there by the brick wall over there, and he said, oh no, no, it's a latrine. It's a latrine for the toilet. And I said, no, it is not a latrine for the toilet. we got toilets working inside the bungalow. We've got two little toilets. Why don't you tell the truth? If you're a Christian, you should tell the truth. And that's when he hit me with it. Uh, Well, he started to cry, first of all, and he said, Oh, Mr. Klein, I'm sorry, but uh, if people invade here, we're going to have to move out very quickly and be not allowed to take you. I did say to our senior officer, why can't we take you? And he just said, they will have to be killed. To which he then said, but I would do it for you. Mr Clive, I would do it for you and I will make sure you don't have any pain. I'll just do it in the back of your head um, one at a time so you you won't have any pain, Mr Clive.
3: Clive couldn't bear to tell his fellow hostages what he'd discovered.
4: They were all talking about maybe us going home quite soon and maybe if our friends do invade... They'll rescue us and take us home, and I just didn't want to tell them, so I'm afraid i I ended up um shutting myself with a um a blanket over my head and uh telling everybody that I wasn't feeling very well and not to disturb me, but in reality, I'm afraid to say i was I was so scared.
3: B. George Shalom was still working round the clock at the American Embassy. The man who'd come to Kuwait to be a banker was now the newly appointed security officer. It was hard work. He'd taken the place of experienced diplomats who'd since been evacuated. George was then informed about a release program for Arab Americans. Supposedly, those with Arabic surnames could go home. George wanted to make sure it was legitimate.
1: I asked questions like, is this recognized by the United States government? Yes. Is this recognized by the Iraqi government? Yes. Should I leave these people who are a part of, and and I don't want to feel like I'm deserting them? On the other hand, uh, there's my family. So I had to make a decision to accept or not accept it. And I decided my family has more of a need than, even though they have a need, the people that are in the American embassy at that time. And so I made the decision to go and follow that program. I was taken out of the American embassy. The moment that uh, I went out of that, the Iraqi individuals took my American passport. They took me to their secret police headquarters, interrogated me for a period of time and then uh, took me to Baghdad.
3: So just to be clear then, you were sent out of the embassy under false pretenses, weren't you? I mean, they let you go out under a program that didn't really exist, and you ended up with a secret place.
1: That's correct.
3: This is quite astonishing, and it gets worse. George told me that messages were sent back to the embassy, warning them that the program was false. It's still a mystery what happened to these, and George says it's never been explained to him. It was only later that he discovered the messages had been sent. I asked him exactly what they said.
1: Do not let B. George go. This is not a valid program. The question is, why in the world did the Kuwait embassy let me go?
3: You must have felt betrayed by your embassy.
1: Well, I felt betrayed by some people in the embassy. I'm not sure exactly saying the embassy. The point is that communication was made to send a note not to leave Kuwait because the Arab-American program was false, was a Trojan horse.
3: So instead of being released, George had walked into a trap.
1: I was taken one night blindfolded in the back of a little pickup truck. I think I was ridden around a lot of times because so I would not know exactly where I was going. That's not a big deal because I'd never been to Baghdad anyway. But I was taken to a place that was purported to be uh, a chemical plant and was taken as a human shield placed there.
3: You thought there was a good chance you might be bombed by your own side?
1: Well I did not know. You know, I I surely was not going to make decisions for the President of the United States, who makes decisions for what's best for all of the American population and your country, not just for what's best for B. George. And I, you know, whatever the President thought was the best for the American public, that was okay for me.
3: Sadly, war now seemed inevitable. Here's President Bush at a press conference in November 1990.
0: In three months, the US troop contribution to the multinational force in Saudi Arabia has gone from 10,000 to 230,000 as part of Operation Desert Shield. After consultation with King Fahd and our other allies, I have today directed the Secretary of Defense to increase the size of US forces committed to Desert Shield to ensure that the Coalition has an adequate offensive military option should that be necessary to achieve our common goals.
3: But late in November 1990, something unexpected happened in the UK that had the potential to be a game-changer for the human shields. Margaret Thatcher is making one of her last appearances in the House of Commons as Prime Minister after her decision this morning to resign once the
4: Conservative Party chooses a successor to her.
3: As Thatcher had been such a central figure in the Western coalition against Iraq, could her removal mean the heat would get turned down on Saddam? Might this be good news for the hostages? It's impossible to know if this affected Saddam's thinking, but his next move, only a few weeks later, stunned everyone.
2: BBC News. It's become clear in the past half hour that the Iraqis are proposing to release all their foreign hostages without delay.
3: Whether all the trips from politicians to Baghdad had finally paid off, or he was just looking for a way out of conflict, or perhaps Felder's guests were no longer useful, we'll never know. Bowie thought it sounded too good to be true.
2: We knew from the radio that there was hope of this happening, but I didn't trust those people and I wasn't prepared to put myself in the position of believing that I would go home if that hope was going to be dashed. And then Mr. Rael came along, who I was more inclined to believe by that stage, and he said, no, it's true, I don't know when, but I've been asked to make preparations to transport you to Baghdad but I haven't got instructions when that will happen.
3: Barry's captor, a man he called Mr Royale, had defied the official orders and done his best to treat the hostages fairly.
2: He then said, I, I, why don't we go and take you out for dinner? Then it became a little bit surreal. We were taken out for dinner and uh, we were taken to the Ashore Hotel on the opposite side of the lake, sat down, And again, we're not going to believe that we're going to be released. We, We felt that we were in a kind of you remember me after the war, Johnny, kind of situation. But my only reaction to that was somebody puts a menu in front of me and says, you can order what you want. I'm going to order everything. Somebody says, would you like a drink? And I say, well, what is there? And they say, would you like to come and have a look in the wine cellar? I'm going to pick up as much as I can carry. And that's exactly what happened. I, I ordered as much for, for, i couldn't eat a mouthful of it no, i genuinely could not eat a mouthful of it not because it wasn't good food but I just couldn't eat I couldn't digest food I couldn't eat food
3: so you just sat there looking at this amazing food but no I sat there I
2: sat there drinking um, everything and anything that was that was there but we none of us could get drunk it was, it was bizarre you you drink and drink and drink but we we couldn't we just we were just drinking and getting nowhere with it But we stayed there and then we were taken back to the dam and we were polishing off or carrying on with the the drinking until we were in a bit of a state, I suppose. And then Mr Royale appears and says, you're all going to Baghdad now. The news
3: even reached those in hiding. Flight 149 Captain Richard Brunyat had been living in a Kuwaiti safe house for months. The stewardesses who were part of his escape group had managed to make it out when the women were released. But Richard and his colleagues, Brian, Malcolm, and Gordon, had stayed undercover since then. After finishing his lookout duty one morning, Richard came downstairs and was greeted by an emotional crewmate.
0: Brian was there in tears, and uh, I said, Brian, what's the matter? And he said, I've just heard we're all going to be released. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I've just heard on the BBC we're all going to be released. And he was, I didn't think he was capable, of a big hulk like that, capable of such emotion, but he was.
3: After talking with their contacts to verify the news, it looked like it was legitimate. But Richard was still nervous. You might remember the story about his father having some history with Saddam Hussein that he said made him very anxious not to be captured. Brian and Malcolm gave themselves up first, Heading to a Kuwait City hotel. This left just Richard and Gordon still in the safe house.
0: So then Gordon had this monumental task of trying to persuade me to give myself up. And the last thing I wanted to do is to go back into the lion's lair, if you like, and then go up to Baghdad, these headquarters, the one place i have been trying to avoid for the last three and a half months. And eventually, after much persuasion, he did. And um, we, did, we gave
3: ourselves up. The US ambassador helped to arrange paperwork and transport for them. But even the day before they were due to leave, Richard and his group were still worried it might all fall through. That night we couldn't sleep.
0: The Iraqi intelligence people were going to come and pick us up in that morning and interrogate us. So I thought the best thing to do is get out at 7. So we did, we left. Went to the airport. We were stopped by an Iraqi patrol on the way in. And I thought, oh dear, this is not looking too good. But they then took us on to the airport. And then I could see why they didn't believe the fact there was an aircraft leaving because the whole place was littered to stop helicopter landings with debris, tanks, old lorries, all over the airfield. I'm Josh Klein.
1: And I'm Elise Hugh.
0: We host a podcast from Accenture called Built for Change.
1: Every part of every business is being reinvented right now. That means companies are facing brand new pressures to use fast evolving technologies and address shifting consumer expectations.
0: But with big changes come even bigger opportunities. We've talked with leaders from every corner of the business world to learn how they're harnessing change to totally reinvent their companies.
1: And how you can do it too.
0: Subscribe to Built for Change now so you don't miss an episode.
3: This is the secret history of Flight 149 with me, Stephen Davis. Despite the airport chaos, Richard and his team did make it onto a flight. During a stopover in Frankfurt, tantalisingly close to home, Richard was taken aside by another British Airways captain.
0: I'd obviously been pointed out to him. come with me. And he took me down the ramp and he gently pushed me through the first class or club class curtain of the 767. And there in front of me, all my friends from BA from the 747 fleet were lined up. There was the flight manager, there was stewards, stewardesses, engineers, first officers, and they're all lined up in front of me. And that was the one moment when I couldn't speak. That they had a huge organization set up for us just for our arrival and everybody in BA was praying for us, they were wearing yellow ribbons for us. We, we didn't, had no idea this, we thought we were insignificant, but obviously to BA we weren't.
3: After more than four months in captivity, the remaining Flight 149 hostages were finally on their way home. But even on the plane, Bowie still couldn't accept it was really
2: true. I was genuinely frightened to believe we were going home. But until we were landed at Gatwick, and I had stepped off that bloody thing and I was far enough down that somebody couldn't drag me and put me on that flight, I didn't believe that I was going anywhere. Here's Clive.
4: It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, What more can you say? Lots of tears, lots of crying. British Airways collected family up from all over the country and took them to Gatwick Airport, to a hotel just outside the airport and they took us straight to the hotel where we were all reunited. It was an absolute incredible thing.
3: I asked Clive's family, his wife Jackie, son Stephen and daughter Joanne about the reunion there's a picture of us all. Yeah. You can actually see my arms wrapped around near enough everyone. And yeah. I was crushing Joanne and Barry.
4: Yeah, it's was my, like my
0: first husband, so, yeah. And Suzanne was squashed in the middle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we were told we were in that huddle for about 20 minutes.
3: After more than four months apart, you can see why they would have wanted that embrace to go on and on. There's one story about what it felt like to finally be home, that's always stuck with me. And it's from B. George Saloom.
1: Well, you know, uh, there's expression that says, uh, what is commonplace becomes very dear in its absence. Part of that, I think, is uh, the concept of gratitude. So I got back to uh, San Diego and uh, Deborah had asked me to, uh, to go to a grocery store to pick things up. Well, I had the privilege, number one, to to drive in a car. And knowing that uh, I had not had many freedoms previously in my experiences uh, with uh, Kuwait, I recognized and realized how blessed and how special it was. And I sat in a car for five to ten minutes and cried profusely. And cried I emotionally was thankful for the blessings that I have by living in the United States of America, the opportunity to go where I wanted to go within legal limits, to do what I wanted to do, to buy anything I wanted to, to eat anything I wanted to do, and partake of all the freedoms that we so freely uh, accept and so many times don't realize what we have.
3: By mid-December, all of the human shields were home. But the story doesn't end there. Far from it. Publicly, Western Allies had been steadily increasing their military presence in the region for months. Privately, they'd had another strategy in play. It involved special forces on the ground. At the very start of the invasion, several teams of special operators were sent to the Gulf. One of these would go on to become the infamous Bravo 2-0 mission. But in the early days of the operation, well before the outbreak of war, there were other military teams operating in the region. One two-man team ended up in southern Kuwait to keep an eye on Saddam's Republican Guard. They sent back critical intelligence on Iraqi troop positions and movements, but their mission went drastically wrong when one of them was struck down with food poisoning. He was dehydrated and in danger. Without medical treatment, he would die. They radioed for help and were given instructions to meet at a remote position 12 miles into the desert. They slowly inched towards the pickup point, but after a mile, the unwell soldier collapsed. He couldn't go on, but his compatriot refused to leave him behind. He finished the rest of the water and picked up his colleague, the dead man's lift, carrying him the rest of the way. Finally, a helicopter appeared on the horizon, and they were airlifted to safety. They were taken to a U.S. warship nearby. Does this ring any bells? Remember Larry Yetingfield?
2: We were ordered to uh, proceed at best speed to pick up two uh, British Special Forces that had been injured.
3: Officially, of course, this never happened. The British government denies there was any rescue operation. Except I sat in front of Larry Eddingfield while he told me about the mission, and I went on to track down one of the soldiers involved. But how did these soldiers get into Kuwait in the first place? Next time, on The Secret History of Flight 149, I begin to unravel the complex web of lies spun for three decades. The Secret History of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Phil Brown. The series is based on my book, Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try American Vigilante. It's about the controversial figure of KC, a man who could save your life, but end it too. Search for American Vigilante and subscribe now. Thanks for listening.
0: Network, a place where you belong.